Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, so tonight I'm back from a really long month off or so, uh, thanks to um, family stuff, mainly uh, my mother's illness and uh, recent death. Uh, so her funeral's on Monday, and um, basically I'm just looking to get back on track with the podcast. Uh, so... First of all, tonight I want to cover a couple of things. I want to talk through a very short video on uh, this whole idea of atomism in the libertarian world. Uh, so I'm going to go off of a video by Johan Norberg. And this was brought to my attention by the Cafe Hayek blog. So I'm just going to post uh, the thing that I found uh, to get there and I will just um, make that available to you basically uh, I'm not going to play the video over the over the audio here it's just uh, it's really short and essentially what this guy says um, so just to give you some background Johan Norberg is he's a Swedish guy who basically makes these little uh, two three minute videos about you know what um, everyone who isn't a libertarian gets wrong about everything and in this specific video, he takes in this claim by supposed conservatives that, you know, that libertarians are atomists, that all they care about is, uh, you know, just being all by yourself. You know, you got to be this rugged individual. And, you know, I've, I've talked about rugged individualism and stuff like that on the show, but it's just kind of funny how uh, it's almost like he doesn't understand the critique at all, um, which would makes sense why he doesn't uh, rebut it very well. So he talks about uh, the fact that, you know, Patrick Deneen in his recent book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed, uh, you know, makes this comment about uh, libertarians being atomistic individuals, and, or at least libertarian philosophy leading you down that road. And Norberg's response is to read quotes from Smith and Locke um, about you know, them making some passing references to the fact that, you know, people, uh, you know, depend on each other in communities and stuff like this. Um, and so there, I think there's two things to say to this. Uh, the first one is that, of course, um, Adam Smith and John Locke would be horrified by the level of societal decay that exists now, um, you know, hundreds of years after they uh, were writing. And, you know, to the extent that there's much sort of redeeming about uh, Smith or whoever on, on economics, you know, it, it's a, it's like that they they understood a little bit more that you know markets were social things that were, um, you know, that were part of communities and that those communities had value. Um, but the second thing is to say that you know every every uh, every libertarian appeal to anything is all is just full of uh, number one. Uh, libertarian individualist uh, economic arguments, right? That the, the individual is the basic unit of society and uh, only individuals act and all these sorts of things. <clears throat> and then the other thing is to say that the, the way, just listen to the way they talk. They'll say things like, um, well, you know, voluntary communities. Well, we're, we're, we're concerned about voluntary communities. You know, we're libertarians. We just don't, we just don't want the government to, to you know, X, Y, Z. And it's like, look, man, that's what we mean by individualistic, you know, atomistic individuals. 
is that the individual is the one who decides everything. They are the ultimate authority. So everything in life is just sort of a arm's length handshake deal. Um, and that's just not the case, right? Read, um, read the virtue of nationalism. I, I cannot remember the name of the author right now, but the virtue of nationalism talks about the fact that people, uh, people have duties to their families that they are not, that they don't voluntarily choose. Uh, and then, you know, when you look at a community, a community is just a group of families, right? So of course, every, every unit of society is built on a smaller one, um, all of which goes down to a the most fundamental level, the family, that is completely contingent on non-voluntary, non-chosen obligations. So this is the thing. This is the problem with libertarianism. It's, a, it's inherently relativistic, and it's inherently individualistic, period. It doesn't matter that people like Johann Norberg uh, don't understand this. So the second thing I want to do is I want to go through a nice little um, article called in Reason Magazine, uh, you know, insert clown horn here, uh, called Regulation and the Right Ordering of Economic Life, What Libertarians Can Learn from Catholic Social Doctrine by Stephanie Slade from the December 2019 issue. So I'll put a link to this. Um, it's fairly short, so I'm just going to read the whole thing and just comment on each uh, paragraph or, or as I see fit. Um, you know, and I think what's interesting about this is this uh, represents sort of some headway that's being made in um, by the by you know some of us who are or kind of thinking more and more about um, kind of Catholic social teaching and. Uh, just more traditional ways of thinking in general doesn't necessarily have to be Catholic, but um, <clears throat> you know this this kind of discussion is starting to find its way into outlets that would not otherwise want to talk about these types of things. Okay, so here is Stephanie Slade's article. Since the first papal encyclical on modern economic questions, Rerum Novarum, was promulgated in 1891. Catholic pontiffs had had harsh words for unbridled capitalism and philosophical liberalism. In Quadragesimo Anno, Pope Pius XI wrote that the right ordering of economic life cannot be left to a free competition of forces. For from this source, as from a poison spring, have originated and spread all the errors of individualistic economic teaching. In Octogesima Adviennens, Pope Paul VI argued that structures should be set up in which the rhythm of progress would be regulated with a view to greater justice. Uh, okay, so commentary on that sounds perfectly reasonable, read just like it is. Um, you know, these were not so old that we can't understand them, especially Paul VI. I mean, this was published in 1971. Um... And all it takes is just for you to admit that it is legitimate for you to sub, you know, subordinate your concerns about GDP to something, uh, some kind of moral compass that's more important than that. That's more important than just GDP maximization or, you know, GDP growth maximization, whatever. Okay, <clears throat> next paragraph. 
The upshot, that a capitalist system cannot be trusted automatically to produce what the church views as morally acceptable outcomes, may seem to require Christians to support a robust central government. If society is to be oriented to the common good, surely some person or body needs to have enough power to do the orienting. What, besides the state, can regulate the market? And so this is where we already go completely off the rails with um, Slade's analysis here. Um, there is nothing requiring, nothing in Catholic social teaching whatsoever, requiring what these people consider a robust central government. According to subsidiarity, the government is, uh, governments at different levels um, should be allowed to do things that governments or other social organizations that are either more local or smaller can't handle. So, you know, the, the, the general example is national defense. Of course, national defense cannot be handled by, you know, a county government or, you know, a handful of families. Um, it's just, it's in the name. It's by its very nature. Um, and so it's, it's not as if, uh, you know, there's some kind of robust central. I mean, it's like automatically with, with this kind of thing, it's always either, you know, almost complete anarchy or a quote unquote robust central government. There's never anything in between with, with this stuff. You, you never, they will never admit that there is a reasonable middle position on this stuff. And it's not that, you know, middle positions are inherently reasonable or anything, but it's that, you know, humans, you know, for all of recorded history have been, have been using states to deal with things, uh, to deal with social issues. And so this is just, you know, the, the church's way of saying, this is how, you know, according to our, uh, you know, moral principles, this is how you should do it. Well, good grief. What is so bad about that? What, what makes us Soviets? Uh, it's, it's absurd. Back to the article. But when Pope John Paul II gave an audience to the board of the European Automobile Manufacturers Association in 2001, wow, he offered a different orthogonal answer. As presidents of the major automobile companies of Europe, he told them, you have important responsibilities, not only in guiding the growth of your own industry, but also in ensuring the right development of an increasingly globalized economy. The process of globalization, while opening up new possibilities for progress, poses urgent questions regarding the very nature and purpose of economic activity. It calls for ethical discernment aimed at protecting the environment and promoting the full human development of millions of men and women. She continues, the church's surprising lesson for partisans of big government is that the best tools for correctly ordering economic life are found in the choices of individual market actors. I mean, good grief already. Uh, so it's as if these are, so this is, this is me commentating again. Uh, it's as if they are just inherent opposites that the two can never work together. The two can never work in concert. Um, even, uh, unintentionally, <laughs> it's like you either have, uh, Soviet centralization or, you know, in the choices of individual market actors. I mean, this is just totally ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> This, this dichotomy is, uh, wow. Okay, she continues. Because those choices are based not only on their preferences, but also on their convictions, people's moral sensibilities, the extent to which they believe they have ethical obligations to each other, have a powerful and unavoidable effect on the shape of the economy. 
Contrary to what you might expect, Catholic social teaching suggests that this, not public policy, performs the force, excuse me, perform, performs the first and most important regulatory function in a free society. Okay, well, I think honest people uh, who know something about Catholic social teaching could dispute which, which you know, whether the, the state or, uh, you know, individuals or guilds or unions or, um, you know, any other uh, manner of, you know, hundreds of different social organizations perform the first and most important regulatory function in a free society. Um, but I just don't see how it's just automatically by, you know, some random address that JP2 gave to the European Automobile Manufacturers Association in 2001. So all of a sudden we're supposed to listen to that, not the encyclicals that obviously carry more weight. Okay. Now this is Reason Magazine, so what do you expect? Okay. She continues. The popes of the last century have been clear that when they speak out against unregulated liberal capitalism... They're referring to a system in which all involved are concerned solely with their own material advantage and will happily sacrifice others in the pursuit thereof, per the Catechism of the Catholic Church. A theory that makes profit the exclusive norm and ultimate end of economic activity is morally unacceptable. Yeah, this, again, this is not, this one tiny little line ripped out of its context does not preclude um, other uh, uh, does not preclude the necessity, the moral necessity of other restrictions on capitalism. It's totally insane. <clears throat> she continues, the encyclicals paint a grim hypothetical picture in which our moral obligations are subordinated to, if not obliterated by, a dictum of wealth and power uber alles. Blessedly, that picture bears little resemblance to how modern market economies actually function. All around us, thousands of times a day, Human beings act in ways that confound simple self-interest. Well, yeah, of course they do. Um, again, that that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that all of our problems can be solved with uh, by trusting "quote unquote" simple self-interest. Um, you know, or or that that people should just be allowed to do whatever the heck they want, um, absent any kind of authority. And I think you know this is. Uh, I'll just say this now. It's probably be more relevant later, but this is this is um, this gets at this kind of defaultism that you get with uh, a lot of this kind of stuff, where it's like, you know, well, the default position is to just let people do what they want, and so unless you have some kind of reason for us to move from that to something else, then you know we we you know some really compelling reason, then we shouldn't we shouldn't change anything. We should just let individuals do whatever the heck they want. And of course, this is ridiculous. There is no such default. There is no, there is no default in anything moral. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's definitely not the case that there is some kind of, uh, you know, assumption out there that we have to uh, just let people do things. Oh, and the fact that, gosh, the fact that people put money in the Salvation Army's red kettles, as she's about to say, well, that just obviates all need for everything, all policy, right? Come on. She continues, sometimes that involves charitable giving and other explicit do-goodery. Well, I mean, I can explain charitable giving and explicit do-goodery 
in terms of self-interest, right? It makes me feel good to give people money. So I do it. Boom. Now it's self-interest, right? That doesn't confound self-interest. Okay. When you drop a few dollars into the Salvation Army's red kettle, you're altering, however slightly, the level of poverty produced in the market. But consider, as well, the young father who turns down a promotion because it would involve weekend travel, and he wants to spend that time with his kids. Consider the employer who accepts a lower salary for herself in order to afford more generous health insurance for her staff. Consider both the activists who organized a boycott of Chick-fil-A upon learning the company's owner had spoken out against same-sex marriage, and the Colorado baker who turns away businesses if it would require him to decorate a cake with a message that runs against his religious convictions. Consider everyone who's ever paid extra for fair trade coffee. I mean, this is just comical. It's like, well, because in some cases, you know, people do the right thing, then that means we should never require the, to do them require them to do the right thing ridiculous she continues in all these cases and countless others individuals and groups make choices that reflect their values but if unregulated capitalism is defined as a system in which men and women are profit maximizing automata then every time people depart from the homo economicus script they're behaving as a check on the system Given this reality, the idea of, quote, unregulated, unquote, capitalism begins to seem nonsensical. The choice is never between markets that are constrained and those that aren't. It's between markets shaped by participants with this and that set of beliefs and commitments. The British political philosopher H.B. Acton put it well in 1972 when he observed that moral standards come into operation mainly at the level of demand so that a drunken and profligate population will demand one type of thing and a sober and chaste population another. Okay, so we get uh, a few interesting references here. Um, unregulated capitalism is not defined as a system in which men and women are profit-maximizing automata. All right, so that's... the Profit-maximizing automata is, a, is a, a, an economic theory... That's not, that's not the definition of unregulated capitalism. The definition of unregulated capitalism is the assumption that uh, you don't need regulations because everybody will just figure out how to be nice. So here comes the Mott and Bailey strategy where we say, oh, okay, well, you know, the, 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 the markets are just going to be shaped by the participants with the beliefs and commitments they have. And so now, so now it becomes, oh, well, you, you don't dare say that, you know, my beliefs and commitments are wrong, would you? I mean, the markets, the market is blameless, right? It, it has nothing to do. It does, has no control over beliefs and commitments. And of course, this is just the old, um, you know, politics is downstream from culture and a slightly different frame. Okay, you know, put whatever river analogy you want. Um, the point is that all of these things have feedback mechanisms, you know, the the fact that you use markets to, uh, you know, dole out good X affects the way people think about good X. Um, you know, people start thinking about it in terms of supply and demand and, you know, how much they, how much it costs them and opportunity costs and everything like this. Um, so it's not clear to me that that's somehow morally superior to every other way of, uh, you know, dealing with the distribution of good X, whatever that X, whatever good X is. She continues. 
Here's where libertarians and other opponents of excessive government regulation have something to learn. Because the free market is a marvelously efficient method of allocating finite resources, it can be tempting to insist that any and every outcome produced by a free market is equally good. Yet it's clear that a capitalist system in which people care deeply about their neighbor's well-being will look different from a capitalist system featuring all the same legal rules but a cultural norm of selfish disregard, disregard for others. Totally agreed. You finally said something reasonable. Yes, I completely agree with you. The problem is that as a libertarian, you can never um, stand up and say that, you know, selfish disregard for others is bad. Um, you know, you're committed to being a relativist. Well, it's voluntary, so, you know, can't say anything bad about it. Okay, continuing. <clears throat> the distinction may manifest itself in whether soup kitchens are well stocked or in the rate of suicide in a community. There's no reason we can't look at such outcomes. No reason we can't make a judgment about which type of society is morally preferable and no reason we can't work to shape the underlying culture accordingly. Well, of course there is. Um, again, if your fundamental moral principle is voluntary individualism, then there's a whole slew of things you can't say from a moral perspective and be consistent. Okay, she continues. That's not to say that less than ideal outcomes justify top-down intervention. As Acton pointed out, moral principles are inculcated through their upbringing under the influence of parents, schools, and churches. If in a democratic society these agencies fail, there is nothing to be gained by transferring the function of education to government, since this will be elected by the same people who have failed to inculcate the right moral principles or have not been brought up to act on and respect them. Trying to impose our vision of morality on others through force of law, then, is nearly always a futile endeavor. <laughs> Fortunately, the free market leaves open to us a better option. Nurture good habits and beliefs, and then use social pressure and persuasion to transmit them to others. Work to solve problems through private institutions such as churches, charities, and labor unions. Learn from the wisdom of the ages and hold fast to the truth when you find it. Okay, come on. So... There is so you're what you're saying is there is absolutely no reason for us to use the law um, to impose morality on people to impose our vision of morality. See, she's already she's already uh, sort of hedging so that she can be a relativist. Impose our vision of morality. I mean, you sound like a progressive. What is the difference between you and a progressive on this issue? Nothing. <laughs> Fortunately, the free market leaves open to us a better option. Yeah, it leaves it open to you. And then if none of those other things work, then you have no recourse because you've, you've completely hamstrung yourself. You've said that the only thing you can do is, uh, uh, is, is uh, voluntarist uh, individualism. Well, if none of that works to, you know, to, to solve the problems you have, you know, communities falling apart, rural America just dying uh, thanks to plutocrats, um, then what are you supposed to do? I mean, well, what you'll say is that, well, I guess, the, I guess those communities weren't very efficient. And then we'll all realize that efficiency was the fundamental moral virtue that you have. That's the fundamental moral premise. Efficiency. Oh, boy. All right. So I'm going to finish the rest here, and then I'll have a couple more comments. 
For more than 100 years, Roman pontiffs have held that individuals voluntarily working together have primary responsibility for solving social problems. Government may be necessary as a backstop, but only when all other options for addressing grave injustices have failed. Okay, I gotta stop there. Seriously? That is idiotic. The, no. <laughs> Not when all other options for addressing grave injustices have failed. That's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There's no way you can back that up. Okay, let me continue. Employers and workmen may of themselves affect much by means of such associations and organizations as afford opportune aid to those who are in distress, Pope Leo XIII wrote in Rerum Novarum. Among these may be enumerated societies for mutual help, various benevolent foundations established by private persons, and institutions for the welfare of boys and girls, young people, and those more advanced in years. Future encyclicals went further, fleshing out the concept of subsidiarity. The proposition that decisions should be made and problems solved as close to the individual person as possible. Or as Pope John XXIII put it in Mater et Magistra, it is wrong to withdraw from the individual and commit to a community what private enterprise and industry can accomplish. We might not agree on what is meant by uh, that what private enterprise and industry can accomplish. They can accomplish a few things, sure. Very important things. But they can't define the bounds of our moral, you know, what, what's morally allowed. Her concept of subsidiarity is so funny because in everything you read on subsidiarity, the foundation is the family. I mean, the first, I don't know, the first several paragraphs of Rerum Novarum is about the family. Because the whole point of Catholic social teaching is the family, not the individual. I mean, this is just absurd. This is just, it's nothing but self-serving garbage. Um, but, you know, this is, what, this is what passes for analysis of Catholic social teaching. Um, when this is, you know, when this is all you have. Uh, so it's, it's sad. And with that, I, I think I'll just go ahead and stop. Uh, so thanks for listening, and I'm, I'm going to have some more stuff coming out on a, a broader range of subjects, not just economics. Uh, so look for those. I got some interviews, uh, some discussions of uh, you know movements, you know movement to you know uh, an individual. I'm going to interview talking about you know be, coming from a libertarian background to becoming more conservative, and um, I'm going to talk with Levi Breederland about uh, homeschooling. So uh, look for those coming up soon. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.